Hi, and welcome to Fido, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. This week, I've got a fun one for you. Now, I think if you've listened up to this point, you know that while I'm mostly adhering to fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales, I'm certainly not above a flight of fancy into an adjacent genre. This time, I've got some classic pulp science fiction for you. And relative to a lot of other stories we cover here, this one is quite recent. I think you'll enjoy it. More to come, so I'll catch you after the story. And now, as published in Planet Stories by William Oberfield in 1947, Escape from Pluto. Exiled to Pluto's harsh wastes, Martius Kimball listened eagerly to the evil voices planning his triumphant return. But even the Plutonians underestimated the flaming glory to which they sent him. Martius Kimball stood upon the frozen surface of Pluto and swore aloud. He knew there were none to hear him, but just the same, he shouted into his plastic space helmet until his ears were ringing, cursing all the planets and their diverse inhabitants in order, most of all Earth. You see, Martius Kimball was an example. He was an example to any others in the year of 2200 A.D. who would strive to rule the solar system. The planets were independent states, and they were to remain that way. For trying to change this, Kimball had been exiled to unexplored Pluto. Martius raised his mailed fist toward the mighty stars and ground out curses against Earth and all those upon it, wishing that he could call upon it the wrath of heaven and hell, for it had been the men of Earth who had brought about his ultimate downfall. It had been the age-old story of a power-mad tyrant finding out the secret grudges of his subjects and working on them to inspire a frenzy of hate, to maneuver them into a war against unsuspecting neighboring nations. He had gained control of the whole of Mars in this way and had been reaching out for the moon system of Saturn when the full force of the planetary combine had come against him, scattering his forces. The counter-offensive had been led by Earth, and it had been the Earth ship which, after his short-lived escape, had parachuted him to the cold surface of Pluto. Is it any wonder that he should hate them? Martius Kemble looked fearfully around at the bleak, frozen landscape of Pluto, a cold hell, hardly reached by the light of the sun. Then he began to laugh. Martius laughed into the little plastic world of his helmet, and the sound roared back into his own ears, and he laughed louder. Tears streamed down over the contact lenses in his eyes and caused the white mountains to gesticulate and beckon to him. He was beginning to see it all very clearly now. It wasn't his own laughter in his helmet. The white mountains were laughing at him. The stars and sun were laughing, and all the people of all the planets— it was all concentrated into his ears by the curve of his helmet. They were spying on him to see what he would do, laughing because he could do nothing, their voices filling his head, asking who he was, what he was going to do now, mocking him. He would show them, run to the laughing white mountains, cast them into an ocean, crush them beneath his feet. That would put them in their places. 
Do it now. Martius pulled himself to his feet. He knew that he had been running and had fallen, striking his helmet upon something hard, and that he had been laughing, crying and cursing at the same time. The reverberating blow had shocked him into silence, and he was remembering the words of the doctor who had cared for him back on Mars. The doctor had said, "'You have a great mind, sire, a very strong will, but there are some flaws, as in all men. If you should know defeat, your only hope will be death.' Living, your mind would refuse to give up, beating itself into insanity against a blank wall. Now Martius knew what the doctor had meant. There were still the voices in his mind repeating over and over, Who are you? Who are you? Almost as if they were mocking the beating of his heart. There was something strange about the voices, Martius thought. It was as if there were some alien intelligence behind them. There were two of them and they seemed to require an answer from him. It was with no great hope that he answered the voices by concentrating upon his name and present predicament. The thoughts of Martius Kemble did not go unheard. Unknown to the rest of the solar system, Pluto had its inhabitants. To Earthmen, these would be very strange beings, not alone in appearance, but in composition. Their heads were roughly triangular, widening upward from a pointed chin and resting on thin yet strong necks above equally strong and spindly man-like bodies. They were mainly composed of elements which became solid only at very low temperatures. Thus it was that one of these beings sat before a radio-like device and perspired in the extreme cold of the room. His long pointed ears were depressed by the weight of a shiny metal cap, and his two large eyes held a look of worried consternation. The reason for his consternation was the thoughts of the ex-dictator of Mars. The wearer of the cap shot a series of rapid sounds at the other occupant of the room. He said, in effect, I have received thought emanations from the direction of the great plain, rather garbled. The being is probably a giant from some other world, for his thoughts are alien and he evidently considers it within his power to crush the mountains which house us. The other made a negative gesture with a slender hand. Don't you think it is more likely that it is a trick of the enemy to frighten us, Gore? They have tried such things before, you know. Gore was quiet while he peered into the eyepiece of an instrument. Then he replied, We will soon know. Tower 3 has made contact, giving us the exact location, and the Inquisitors have now gone to work on him. For a while the two Plutonians busied themselves with their various machines. Then Gore spoke again. You are radiating sorrow, Bakar. What troubles you? Bakar sighed. I was thinking of the ancient pictures of Andi in the days when its orbit was much nearer the sun, and we, the inhabitants of Andi, were happy in our beautiful cities. Now the two remaining great nations hide, one from the other, beneath the mountains, and neither can break the defenses of the other, but we still try. What is the use of it? Careful, Bakar, Gore looked sternly at the other. The four may have you in the thought-beam. You know that the four lead us along this path because it is the only choice, the path shown in the future machine. In the time you speak of, Gore went on, the people were no better off than we of today because they did not have the future machine. They had failures. They wandered from the way, and their failures turned them back to the course provided by the natural law. Now we know for what we are bound, and, if we work toward that end, can know no failures. 
A strange light came into Bakar's eyes, but he said nothing. Shortly thereafter, a voice drifted into the room. It was a mild voice, but it was also old and wise. The voice said, This is Nell, one of the four. The being on the plane has been probed and analyzed, and has been found to be a creature of the carbon class from the inner worlds. He has sought to deceive us in the manner in which he has deceived his own, but we have seen all. The being is of a race called Man, and is named Ma Shus Kembil. He is clothed in a type of space armor which embodies an air purifier, good for a period of time long enough to transport him to the fourth planet at half the speed of light, and is protected against cold by electric and tonic stimulants, which do not produce heat, but only suspend the sensation of cold. Therefore we may come in contact with him without fear of burns. Since the future machine indicates that he must be sent back into space, and since there is no place for him in our world, he will be disposed of at once. Tower 2 will dispatch two ships. The man will be instructed in the operation of one of the ships and sent on his way. The pilots will return in the other ship. That is all. For a long moment, quiet filled the room. Gore was uneasy as he said, Well, Bakar, have you not heard? It is your duty to dispatch the ships. Why do you hesitate? Bakar sprung to his feet, a small weapon clutched in his claw-like hand. No, he hissed, I will not obey the machine. I am going to prove to you, and to all, that it can be wrong. You know of the soft places in the plain, Gore. It is a wonder that the man did not land in one of these, considering that there are more of these than solid ground. But he will weary of waiting for the ships, which he has been informed of, and begin to wander. He cannot go far before he is swallowed up, sinking deeper and deeper. Then we shall see if the future machine is always right. Gore said nothing, but a slight smile came to his lips, a rather ironic one. It was much later when Gore again spoke. He turned from his position at the thought receiver and said, "'News for you, Bakar. I have just received thought that the man is on his way.' Bakar visibly started, and Gore continued, "'How many times have you complied with an order from the four and pressed the button that informs second-in-command that you had done so?' force of habit caused you to perform it this time, Bakar. The order went on through second-in-command. He added softly, The future machine never lies. Martius Kimball stood upon the frozen plain and waited. A satanic smile lighted his face and the cry for revenge was in his heart. He somehow felt that the thoughts had not lied, and that they would send the promised ship. Then he would be free again, blasting back to quench his thirst for revenge against the Combine. His face became flushed, and the temperature within his suit became perceptibly greater, as he formed his fanatical plans. While he waited, the leaders of the Combine, in his mind, suffered and died a thousand times. The coming of the ships was swift. One moment there was nothing, the next they rested upon the plain before him. Martius was surprised to note that they were very small, as compared to others he had seen. So much the better, he thought, to elude the space patrol. He also marveled at the fact that the creatures coming toward him from the ships were lightly clothed, and that they could speak to him through his mind. "'Do not fear us,' came the thought. "'You must come with us into one of the craft, to learn of the controls.' Inside the ship, Martius found that learning of the controls was much simpler than he had thought it would be. He sat in the pilot's seat, hands on the controls and eyes closed. 
a thousand times more effective than words, thoughts came to him, and he flew the Plutonian ship through every condition and position that could ever be encountered, even though he had never left the place at which the ship had come to rest on the plain. Mental instruction. It all ended with Martius Kimball, condemned dictator of Mars, soaring away from Pluto forever, still enclosed in his spacesuit because the air within the ship was never meant for the lungs of men, and heading toward Earth, toward the fulfillment of his evil plans. As the atmosphere of Pluto fell away behind him, Martius wondered that he felt no acceleration. Then he remembered a faint something which he had detected in the thoughts of his instructor— something about increased momentum being induced into each individual atom, so that each retained its normal position to that of every other. But Martius was not the kind to spend much time thinking of such complicated matters. Instead, he lapsed into an ecstasy of evil dreams, dreams in which he was again the mighty monarch, this time of Earth. As the little ship drove on through space, Martius pictured himself walking in on the members of the council— he would have gained his rightful place as ruler by then, of course, and chuckled at the expressions he imagined on their faces, mouths hanging open, eyes many times too large, and their heads hanging nearly to their belts. Someone was kneeling before him. It was the Martian member, and his eyes were tightly closed against the stinging tears while his thin hands were clasped before him, praying to Martius to have mercy. Martius was about to order them strung end to end and dangled for the rest of their lives from an overhanging cliff, when he became aware of his present surroundings with a start. Time to start decelerating. Sighing, he reached for the proper lever and pulled it back. For a moment, nothing happened. Then the ship seemed to shake itself and Martius was half-lifted from his seat. It couldn't be. The decelerating force should act equally on his body and the ship— how, then, could he be thrown forward? Something bumped lightly against his helmet and drifted on by. Only for a moment did he stare blankly at the little silvery sphere. Then the nose of the ship came away with a weird, plopping hiss, and he was jerked through the opening by the force of the escaping air. In confusion, he tried to swing his body around so that he could see what had happened. He twisted his shoulders around, but his hips turned equally in an opposite direction— to halt one meant to halt the other. He tried kicking his legs back hard, but only succeeded in arching his body and wrenching his back. Desperately, he began kicking and squirming like a mad dancer. Each motion depended upon an equal and opposite motion of his body. In the midst of his struggles, his heel struck on something and started him spinning head over heels. It was the ship. The combined gravities of the ship and his own body had brought them together again, and he was revolving about the heavier object in a close orbit, and he was turning end for end now. Martius could not feel the motion. It seemed as if the universe were turning about his stationary body, rising at his head and setting at his feet. He saw the ship then, but it was no longer a ship. It dawned on him why the Plutonians had never ventured much nearer the sun, and why, after they had known all about him, they had let him go. Receding from him was a perfect sphere of liquid mercury once the hard hull of a spaceship, covered with a thin layer of water that had once been windows, with small pieces of solid material floating on the surface. It was only a natural law that it should revert to this form when deprived of the sub-temperatures of Pluto. Yes, Marcus Kemble saw it all now, but too late. 
he remembered a demonstration he had seen when a child. A man had poured mercury into a mold and cooled it to near absolute zero. When withdrawn from the mold, it had been a little bell that gave a clear tone. Why hadn't he thought of it before? The cold bodies of the Plutonians enabled them to handle such materials as he would handle steel. They made their ships and machines of such things as mercury and ice, and perhaps a few materials unknown to man, but all of a low melting point. Why should they do otherwise, when the extreme cold of Pluto made those things as hard as steel? It was even doubtful if they could produce enough heat to melt steel or even glass, or if they could produce a substance able to retain such fires. A hot rage began to boil within him. The Plutonians had known it all along. With their science, they could have kept him alive until they had learned how to build a ship that would not melt from the heat of the sun. Now Martius Kimball's unretarded speed carried him through the orbit of the Earth, while it was still many thousands of miles distant. He began to feel the boiling heat of the sun and realized what it would be like when the insulation of his spacesuit gave way to that awful heat. But he decided that he would never live to suffer it. Better to let the vacuum of space draw his life from him quickly and painlessly. Slowly, he reached up to unscrew his helmet. He gave it a slight tug, then twisted with all his might. The helmet did not budge. For a moment, he could not think clearly. Then it came to him. The air pressure within the suit was so great in relation to the vacuum of space that it bound the threads together with a friction that he could never hope to overcome. With fear-filled eyes, he watched the hot disk of the sun expand around him as he fell toward it. The system would soon be rid of Martius Kemble. I have to say that I really love the feel of this one. I don't know if you know what I mean by this, but you can almost feel the black-and-white tone of this story. It feels like black-and-white television science fiction from the same era, up to and including the tinfoil spacesuits and foam rocks and dinner plate flying saucers. Now, I dug into this story along with the author, but I couldn't find very much. What I can tell you is that William Oberfield, who sometimes wrote under Bill Oberfield, contributed this story in the fall issue of Planet Stories in 1947. It was a quarterly magazine for most of its run from 1939 up to 1955. Oberfield seems to have been actively publishing work from about 1946 to 1951, but I could only find a total of four stories, a couple of poems, and a few essays in the form of letters, also in Planet Stories. It's interesting to note that there were some contributions to this magazine by some very well-known writers, even if it wasn't their most famous stories. People like Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and Philip K. Dick showed up in the magazine's pages a time or two. So maybe it's that William Oberfield was not an extremely prolific writer, and that's why I couldn't find all that much about him but I think it's also possible that this just highlights one of the things about this kind of work. It was often a struggle to get paid and recognized as a freelance pulp writer. Even the greats we've mentioned before, like Lovecraft, struggled to make a living this way. And Poe, who was relatively successful, was more so because of his editing and critique than his writing. 
at least at first. But let's talk for a moment about the story. More than the specifics of what happens in this story, I love science fiction from this era, and I think it was advantageous that we knew far less about space and the science of it at the time. The speculators were freer to fill in the gaps, and while looking back, some of the ideas may seem hokey or ridiculous, I love the wonder and the fun of this kind of blast-off rocket fiction. That said, this story still manages to do what science fiction does, and that's address the problems we face as humans through the lens of the far-flung future. In the mid-40s, the dangers of war and world conquest were very present in everyone's minds. I don't think it's a coincidence that the main character in this story, a Hitler-like figure, gets the boot and meets with a horrible, fiery end from the very edge of the solar system all the way into the sun. So, let me know if you like this story. There are quite a few old pulp magazines out there, and I could always find more to read for you. Now, if you're enjoying Fido, then you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, so you don't miss an episode. You can also go to fidopodcast.com and listen on any device. Make sure and share Fido with your friends and family if you like what you're hearing. Word of mouth is my best advertisement. Don't forget to leave me a comment or a question, and I might be able to read them on the air. I love hearing from my listeners. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Fado Podcast, and if you would like to support the show more directly, you can become a patron. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. If you join, you'll get a personal handwritten thank you from me in the mail, as well as a Fado sticker. Also, you'll get a mention here on the show. That brings us to the end of Season 2, Episode 2. Watch for Episode 3, coming out on February 21st. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time.